You know, let me just say this. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I mean, I've always loved the book of Isaiah. It's been one of my favorite Old Testament books. But as I've had the opportunity to study this verse by verse, I am, I am more amazed and more overwhelmed and more delighted every time I read a chapter. The book is so rich, and we're going to see that this morning. We're going to see that in a few weeks when we start Isaiah 53, which actually, by the way, starts in chapter 52. And um, your view, your understanding of our amazing God ought to be expanding every time we do this. God is just manifesting himself. He is revealing himself to us in just incredible ways in this book. And we'll continue to do it through the end of the book. So put your seatbelts on. And, you know, I heard John MacArthur once at a shepherd's conference says, God is amazing and, and you should be amazed. Right? And I would just, God is amazing and, and you should be amazed. So let's open in prayer. We'll get started. Father, we do acknowledge that you are amazing. As we read in Isaiah, your ways are unsearchable. Father, you are beyond us. We will never fully understand all the magnificence of your perfections. But Lord, as you've revealed yourself and your will and your purposes and your plans to us in this book, Lord, make us open and teachable. I pray the Spirit would work in the hearts of every one of us. And we would bow down before you in adoration and thanksgiving and worship for all you have done for us, for all that you will do for Israel. Father, for your eternal plan that you are working out. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, really, we're going to look only today at Isaiah 52 through verse 12. As I mentioned, if you look at Isaiah 53, some of your Bibles may have a little thing in front of verse 13 talking about the exalted servant. So the last servant song starts in chapter 52, verse 13, and will go all the way through chapter 53. And that is one of the most amazing passages about the gospel in the entire Bible, right? People, there are some today who would say the Old Testament's not relevant for the gospel, for our understanding of the gospel. Well, I, it, when you're done with chapter 53, you, you will find that a totally absurd statement, right? Isaiah 53 is one of the most clear declarations of the magnificence of the gospel that you can read anywhere in the Bible. So we'll see that, but we're not there yet. We're in Isaiah 52. And by way of introduction, I just want to point out the fact that one of the things we're going to see in Isaiah 52 is that God turns harlots into queens. God turns harlots into queens. We need to understand that the gospel is not about those special people. It's not about the righteous. The gospel is not about the important people. It's not about the elites. It's not about those who <clears throat> are viewed as worthy theologians. 
The gospel is about harlots, right? The gospel is about taking the unclean and making them clean. The gospel is about taking people worthy and deserving of hell and giving them an eternal destiny in the very presence of the Trinity. We're going to see that in our chapter today in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 21. In describing Israel, God says this, how the faithful city has become a harlot. She is full of justice. She was full of justice. The righteous, a righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. See, God intended Jerusalem to be the queen, and instead it became a harlot, full of murderers. And, and we may go, oh, that's, that's really cool for Israel. That's an interesting fact, Art, thanks. But let me read for you 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now you all hear that and you go, yeah, amen. We don't want those wicked people entering the kingdom. Oh, let's look at verse 11. And such were some of you. See, Paul reminds us that, by the way, that was all of you. Right? You may go, well, I, I didn't do any of those things. Yeah, Jesus said if you looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you're an adulterer. I would argue that all of us have been idolaters at one point or another. There's things that have competed for our affection for Christ. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. I want you to note it doesn't say anything in there about what you did. It says things that God did. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. We need to understand that we are all harlots. We are all unrighteous sinners, totally worthy of the unbridled wrath of God. That's what you deserve. If God is fair, that's what you would get. But let me read you this verse from Revelation 19, starting in verse 7. This is talking about your destiny. This is what God did for you. Let us rejoice and be glad and give, gl and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. See, you were a harlot, but now you're going to be a bride of the Lamb. You're going to wear righteous clothes, fine linen, not because of anything that you did. Nothing that you did. This is all 
the sovereign work of God, and that's what we're going to see today in the book. So let's get into it. First of all, I want to look at the glorious destiny of Israel. Look in verses 1 and 2. It says this, Awake! Awake! Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your glorious garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself, uh, shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. The wording in the English doesn't fully communicate what's in the original. Let me read you a quote from one of the commentaries that says, She is to wake up and recover her ancient power and put on her state robes, i.e. her priestly and royal garments, ornaments, which belong to her as a royal city, as the city of Jehovah had, uh, had his anointed one. For henceforth she will be as she was always intended to be, and that without any further desecration. Heathen, uncircumcised, those who were unclean in heart and flesh, who had entered her by force and desecrated her, heathen who had no right to enter the congregation of Jehovah as they were, but she should no longer be defiled, not to say conquered, but such invaders as these, um, and he lists those, and he says, um, on the construction. Here's the idea that Israel has been a harlot and remains that way to this day. But there will come a day when God will fulfill His promises to her and Jerusalem will become the queen. By the way, Jerusalem will be the holy city and your eternal destiny is to live in Jerusalem forever. The new Jerusalem. I want to take some time and look at this. Notice it says, first of all, Israel is to awake. Jerusalem needs to wake up and get closed, but this time will not be in the rags of slavery, but in the garments of beauty. Dane says that God's saving plan never uh, obviates human responsibility. God does have a sovereign plan, but he works his plan in association with the moral choices of his creatures. See, what he's talking about here is he's addressing the great conundrum, right? How did you get saved? Did you have anything to do with your salvation? No. God saved you. On the other hand, in Romans 10, it says, you know, if you don't believe, you won't be saved, right? You made a choice to believe. We are commanded to do that. When I share the gospel with somebody, I tell them to repent and believe, and they have a choice. They can repent and believe or not. But on the other hand, that's all of God. How does that work? I don't know, right? It is, it is sort of the great conundrum. But we know it's true. And we see this here. 
And I agree with Dane that God's saving plan never obviates human responsibility. We must still respond. And so must Israel. They were spiritually asleep. And by the way, they remain that way today. In Isaiah 51.9, he says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who chop Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? See, back in our last chapter, he told Israel to awake. Jesus told them the same thing. In Matthew 24, Jesus said this, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the day which the Lord, uh, the day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. See, Jesus is warning Israel, he's warning Jerusalem. He's warning the Jews, but he's warning all of us. This is, a, this is a warning not just to them, it's to us. Why would God have to remind us to stay awake? It's because of our tendency to sleep. What? What? Okay. I heard a voice. Just wanted to make sure the rapture wasn't happening. There you go. We need to understand our tendency is to sleep. Look at Peter in the garden, right? The Lord had just told Peter, hey, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, Peter. Now, if I was Peter, I said, and you told him no, right? Well, Jesus didn't tell him no. Instead, what does he do? He says, Peter, stay awake. And pray that you will not enter into temptation. Pray that, Peter. Stay awake. And then Jesus goes off and prays in agony, knowing what's about to happen to him. Right? And he, and he just told Peter, look, Satan's going to sift you like, pray you don't enter into temptation, Peter. And he comes back, and what's Peter doing? Sleeping. That may be unimaginable to us. Right, how I mean, I'm sure Peter was really tired, but we look back judgmentally at Peter and go, Yeah, we wouldn't have slept, man. We'd have been awake, we'd have been alert. Yeah, I'd argue that we spend much of our time asleep. What did they do? They slept and then they entered into temptation and they failed. They failed to stay faithful. Ephesians says this in chapter 5, verse 11. Do not participate in the unfaithful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, there's a sense where he's talking salvifically here. He's saying, look, you who are lost, awake and arise. But he says, we're not, we're not to participate in the deeds of darkness. right? We need to be alert. 
And by the way, Jesus specifically says, as we read in Matthew, that we're to stay alert and we're to stay awake because we don't know when He's coming. Imagine if you were involved in some gross sin at the moment Jesus comes back. And you're going to stand before Him knowing what you were just doing. I wouldn't want to be there, right? I wouldn't want that to be me. But he doesn't just tell them to awake. He says, clothe yourselves in the garment of a queen. In Zechariah 3, verse 4, he says, And he answered and spoke to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garment from him. And he said to him, See, I have made your iniquity pass away from you and clothe you with festal robes. He's talking about Zechariah there, but the idea is we're to remove the old garments. We are to do that. Israel was to do that. Revelation 19, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready, and it was given herself to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Right? We are to put on the righteous acts of the saints. We are to take off our filthy garments. We're not to wallow in our filthy garments. We are not to dress as a harlot. We're to dress as a queen. We're to dress as the bride of Christ. And then I want you to notice he says, cast off your chains. Tells Israel to cast off her chains. In Isaiah 61 verse 1, the Lord himself is commenting on Isaiah 61. And the Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, and He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to prisoners. See, on Jesus' first coming, He says, look, I'm going to set the prisoner free. That's what I'm going to do. That is an open invitation to Israel. He's saying that in the synagogue, by the way, when he reads this. He is pleading with them to be set free from their chains. Just as Isaiah is here saying that one day you will be set free. Take off your chains and walk away. Yes. Isaiah was written in about 700 B.C., right? Are people hearing noise here? Am I going nuts? Okay. I just want to make sure I'm not, like, losing it. Thank you. That's true, unfortunately. Galatians 5.1 For it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand up and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. See, just as here, God is telling Israel, loose yourself from the chains around your neck. Envision captive people with chains and collars around their necks being led off by their captors. And God is saying, I have freed you. Take off the chains. You've been set free. Take the chains off. That's exactly what Jesus says. It was for freedom 
that Christ sets you free. Therefore, don't be subject again to slavery. Her future chains of oppression, by the way, will be cast off. There will come a day when Israel will take off their chains. Remember in Isaiah 45, we read this, I have awakened him in righteousness, and I will make all of his ways smooth. He will build my city and let my exiles exiles go without any payment or reward, says the Yahweh of hosts. He's talking about the servant there who will one day, just as he has set your chains free, set you free from them, he will set all Israel free. It's the same person who's claiming release to both. Jesus, the servant, will one day set them free, and they will be free, just like he has set you free, and you are free now. So let's talk about God's gracious redemption we see starting in verse 3. This this is an amazing phrase that we're about to read. For thus says Yahweh, you were sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says Lord Yahweh, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. So now, what do I have here? declares Yahweh, since my people have been taken away for nothing, declares Yahweh. Those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day I am the one, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. What he reminds them is they entered captivity without money. They entered captivity because of their sin. Dane says this, God is the one who not only sent them into exile, but he is also the one who will free them. Redemption will come by the working of his grace but it will also be through Israel turning to the Lord in repentance and saving faith. That is true of Israel. By the way, church, that is true of you. That is true of you. You were saved by the working of God's grace when you were in chains, and God has set you free through repentance and saving faith. Notice it says Israel will be redeemed without money. What's he talking about there? They were sold into their slavery for their sin without money. If you will, they entered slavery voluntarily. They chose slavery. Jeremiah 15 verse 3 says, You wealth and your treasures I will give to plunder without cost even for all your sins and within all your borders. See, instead of worshiping God, Yahweh, they worshiped idols. Instead of serving their king, they bowed down before idols, and because of that, God brought judgment, and they were oppressed and put in chains literally, and they became captives 
But more than that, spiritually, they were slaves when they chose to give their hearts to another. Right? And that is true, by the way, of all men. That is not just true of Israel. Look around you in the culture. Look around you at most of the people you see at HEB and driving next to you and at your work, when you're at school, when you're at wherever you're at. Right? There are people in chains. There are people who have chosen to worship idols instead of God. But then Jesus makes this incredible offer. God says, you will be freed without money. And uh, in the future, we're going to see Isaiah 55. Let me start in verse 1. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your wages for that what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul in richness. Incline your ear, come and listen that your soul may live. And I will cut an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful loving kindness of David. See, what he's saying is, why do you choose to spend your money, your time, your effort, your life on that? What does not satisfy? That's what the world is doing. They're giving their lives to that which does not satisfy. They're empty. They're looking for joy in their sin, and they're finding despair. I mean, I just heard another thing. You look around, if you want to almost describe American one word, it's despair. It's discouragement. Right? It's not working. They're doing, they're fulfilling all of their pleasures and there's no joy. They're buying what does not satisfy, as the scripture says. But Jesus says, look, come buy from me without money. And I will give you, and he says, I will cut an everlasting covenant with you. He's talking about in the future, what is that everlasting covenant? What is that covenant? No? What is the covenant? The new covenant. He's going to apply the new covenant to them. By the way, how did you get saved? The new covenant. Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. By my shed blood, the new covenant is applied to you, church. God will deliver them from their... Oh, let me back up. Let me just read you Jesus' commentary on this. He's actually not specifically talking about this passage, but he's talking about the concept. In John 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. Remember, he goes up there and the apostles go to get some food and Jesus is sitting there and the Samaritan woman comes to the well. Now, first of all, would a Jewish man talk to a Samaritan woman? That would be the most disgusting, ridiculous thing that could ever happen in the mind of a Jew. Not only talking to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman? 
Come on! But that's exactly what the Lord does. Because the Lord wants to save all. So he gets into this discussion with the Samaritan woman and she goes, Hey, you, you, you don't have a thing to get water out of the well. And he goes, yeah, if you knew who you were talking to, we wouldn't be talking about this well. We'd be talking about some other water. So let me pick it up in verse 13. Jesus answered and said, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, ever. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. See, as frequently happens, what's the woman talking about? What's she talking about? Yeah, just regular water. Satisfying her flesh. She's thirsty. She wants something to drink. It's okay. Jesus says, no, no. I want to talk to you about a different water. I want to talk to you about a water that leads to eternal life. And he says, that's the water I give, right? He's on a different plane than she is right now. But she will come to understand. And he says, look, don't look for this water. Look for the water that gives eternal life, and you will never thirst again. He's not talking physically thirst. He's talking what? Your soul will never thirst again. Your soul will be satisfied for all eternity, and you will never thirst. You know, this, this, if you've got your Bible highlighters, highlight this one up, if you haven't already. Jesus offers living water. By the way, it was, it was a while back that I occasionally go up to Tom Longeway, and I harass him about songs. And I said, hey, there's this song by Gettys, and you need to add this to the repertoire. It is, it is in all of the hymns, it is one of my favorite. And that's the song called Living Waters. Right? It reminds me of what Jesus did for me. Jesus gave me living water. And I never thirst. And then he goes on to remind him that God will deliver them from their oppressors. Israel's history has been marked by oppression. By the way, Israel's history today is still marked by oppression. Right? Go to Gaza. Go look at the hostages. They have been oppressed ever since they were a nation. They've been oppressed ever since they went into captivity. First Israel and then Jerusalem. Then Judah. It's their history. Ezekiel says this, but I acted for my name's sake that I should not be profaned in the, in the sight of the nations whom you lived, in, the sight, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. God says, look, you were oppressed when you were in Egypt and I brought you out. And he reminds them that he brought them out for whose name's sake? His. See, God acts in eternity for His glory. And I'm going to say something that you've heard before, but if you were to say this in the average church, you'd get stoned. 
Do you understand? God did not save you for your sake. It wasn't that God looked up in heaven and goes, you know, I really like Art, man. What a nice guy. He wears a really cool sport coat and, and that tie is really nice. I'm going to save Art. God did not save me for my sake, for my joy, for my happiness. God saved me for his glory. And let this sink into your, into your brains because it's still trying to sink into mine. God received more glory by saving me than condemning me. Now, there are other people that's not true. God is going to be more glorified in their condemnation. Why is that true? I have no idea. Because I know me. And believe me, if I was God, I wouldn't have saved me. Right? I would be in hell where I deserve to be. This is an amazing thought. When you get to worship and you get to praise Jesus Christ and bow down before him because he chose to glorify himself through you. What an amazing thought. And then we see that Israel will know God. Look at it there in verse 6. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. They will know his name. They will know. It's not just that they know his name. They already know his name is Yahweh. They know who he is. They're going to know him in an intimate way. They're going to know him in the same way you know Jesus. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. This is, when I say Jeremiah 34, what comes to your mind? When I say Jeremiah 31, what comes to mind? The new covenant. Right? Jeremiah 31, 31. What is that? The new covenant. When you hear Jeremiah 31, just say the new covenant. Okay? There's more to it, but that's in there. Here's what God says about everybody who's covered by the new covenant. He says, And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, No Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. See, you did not have a relationship with Yahweh. You were separated. In fact, you were enemies of God. You were destined for wrath. And then God gave you living water. God saved you. And God applied the new covenant to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when he did... There was a relationship created with the Creator where you now know God and you don't need anybody to tell you about Him because He has revealed Himself to you in this book. Right? You now know God. In Matthew 7, Jesus has said, Many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, Depart from me, I never knew you. I have no relationship with you. There's no bond between us. When he says, I never knew you, it doesn't mean he doesn't know who they are. He does. 
means I have no relationship with you. But he's not going to say that about you. Because you do have a relationship with him. You will know him. We see the manifold grace of God as he saves Israel for his own sake and glory. It is the same reason he saved us. For his sake and his glory. He saved us and will save Israel for an eternal relationship with him in his very presence. And although we may not understand all of this, we will understand it someday. And we will know this, that God will be the most glorified because of it. Now guys, when you think about this, this ought to cause worship and adoration and amazement in your Savior. Because you live to do what? You were created to do what? Glorify God. All creation was created to do what? That's right. And God, before the foundation of the world, said, Look, I'm going to take, put your name in there, and I'm going to save him. I'm going to let my son endure eternal wrath for his sins so that one day he will be with me in glory forever. And by that, I am most glorified. That, to me, is a completely incomprehensible thought. Right? Me? Art? you got to be kidding. But he's not. Right? And it, the same is true of you. <coughs> and then I want to look at verses 7 through 10. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the proclamation of his glory, of his goodness. Look at verse 7. How lovely... On the mountain are the feet of him who proclaims good news, who announces peace and proclaims good news of good things, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of the watchmen, they lift up their voices, they shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when Yahweh returns to Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together. Your, uh, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all of the ends of the earth may see that salvation of our God. Wow. First of all, that beginning of this phrase should look a little familiar, right? Maybe, maybe we've heard this before. How great is the one who announces good news? The messengers of the ancient world brought their messages by horse or maybe swift-footed messengers who could tirelessly run to deliver wartime messages. This message, though, is the most special one that could ever be delivered, for it is a message of Israel's spiritual warfare is finally over. Israel will be made new. Romans 10, starting in verse 14. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? 
Good question. How does somebody get saved? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Good question. How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. Oh, that would be a quote of what? Oh, I don't know, Isaiah 52. Paul is saying, look, in order for people to believe, what do they need to do? They need to hear. And how are they going to hear without what? A preacher. He's not talking chance hunt. You are all the preachers. Preacher is somebody who proclaims good news. Right? All of us fall into this. We all need to go proclaim the good news. Thank you. God, and notice he says, your God reigns. This is the true source of peace for Christian. Our God reigns. We have no fear because our God reigns. We can have real joy because our God reigns. We have no need to be anxious because our God reigns. We have confidence in our future because our God reigns. We know our ultimate destiny because our God reigns. We look at the world with confidence and not despair because our, we know that our God reigns. This is one of the most powerful statements in all of Christianity. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. This is why ultimately we have hope, because our God reigns. Right? Our God reigns. That is not true of any other religion in the world. What makes Christianity different from any other religion? They worship stone. Our God reigns. What a joyful thought. You know, when you're in the midst of the greatest despair, whatever God brings in your life, we have some people in this church going through some awful things right now. Physically, they're in the hospital going through things, but their God reigns, right? Our joy is assured and our future is assured because our God reigns, right? I can't promise you that you won't find bad news this week. You might find out you have cancer, you lost somebody, you lose your job, whatever. I, I, God never promises that won't happen, but he does promise that he reigns. <clears throat> Thank you, he is. Psalm 93, verse 1. Yahweh reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Yahweh is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is established. It will not be shaken. Now let's look at Zechariah 9.9. What a great verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now listen to this. Does this sound familiar? He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a pack animal. When was that last part of that verse true? That's right. Jesus said, look, go, this guy has a colt, bring it to me. He was fulfilling all prophecy because Zion 
Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming. Hebrews 1, verse 8. For of the Son, he says, Your righteous throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Your God reigns. He has anointed you with the oil of gladness. He will never abandon you. You will never be alone because your God reigns. What a message. And then he talks to the watchman, the voice of the watchman. Listen to the voice in verse 8. They proclaim the message of God. They shout joyfully for Israel to repent and turn to their God. Jeremiah 6, verse 17. I set watchmen over you saying, Give heed to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not give heed. He says, Look, the watchman's going to proclaim salvation, but you need to pay attention. Ezekiel 3, verse 17. Son of man, I have given you as a watchman to the house of Israel so that you will hear a word from my mouth and you shall warn them for me. In a sense, we're all watchmen. Right? We are all watchmen. We look over the world around us and we have a message to proclaim. You go up to the lost and you say, look, you, you need to hear My God reigns. Here's the implication for you. You need, to, you need to repent and follow my God. Right? You're the watchman. And there's a call to break forth. Isaiah gives a call to the waste places of Jerusalem to break forth and shout joyfully. The city that was in desolation will now be rebuilt for the day of comfort and redemption. We have finally arrived for this cause of great celebration. What we need to do is we need to understand that God will still do all of this for Israel. You look at what's happening in the news, do not despair. Hamas is going to lose, right? Hamas is going to lose. Hezbollah is going to lose. All the nations, by the way, are going to lose. All of them. Let me just read you a passage, and it's long, but I, I want to read the whole thing. Romans 11, starting in verse 11. I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? He's speaking about the Jews. May it never be. But by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their faithfulness be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump also. And if the root is holy, the branches also. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentile, 
being a wild olive, were granted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Gentile, verse 18, this to Gentiles, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast against them, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who follow severity, but to you God's kindness. And if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. Verse 23, but they also, if they did not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brothers, be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Long passage, but here's the point. God is reminding the Gentiles that, look, you, you are from a wild olive tree, a tree that produced no fruit, a wild olive tree, but God cut off your branches and grafted you in to the Abrahamic covenant. He grafted you into the new covenant. He grafted you into all those promises that were given to Israel. And he says, but don't get haughty, because one day I'm going to graft Israel back into their own tree. And he points out that in the end, all Israel will be saved. And when he says that phrase, all Israel will be saved, what do you think that means? There you go. Excellent translation. All Israel will be saved. And that's exactly what we're reading here in Isaiah 62. 52. God is going to one day save all of them. And Jerusalem will one day shout when their king comes to rule among them. And who is that king who's going to do that, by the way? Jesus, King of Kings and Lords of Lords. And I want you to just briefly now, I want you to look at your holy pilgrimage. Look at verses 11, 12. Depart, depart! Go out from there, touch nothing unclean. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves. You who carry the vessels of Yahweh, but you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as those who flee, for Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. It's really hard to explain the magnitude of that statement. 
What he's talking to Israel, he says, look, you're in bondage, but you will be led free from bondage. And who is going to lead them? Who specifically? Yahweh will go before you. Yahweh, and specifically, Jesus Christ, their king. The fulfillment of the Abraham Davidic covenant. God's people need to wake up to God's plans to cleanse themselves from uncleanness and to trust in God's promises. Life in this sinful earth is often very difficult, but God's reign will bring an end to these problems and usher the glorious era when he will rule as king. That is true of Israel. It is true of you. It is true of you. Now notice, there's some debate he's, There is an eschatological sense of this. When they leave the world and they are all called together and gather in Israel when God brings them all back from the nations, there may be an aspect of this when they're leaving Babylon. But I want you to notice what he says to them because it applies to you. They're to separate themselves from the world. Right? Notice he says that depart, touch nothing unclean. When you leave, leave the filth behind. Don't bring the filth with you. James said the same thing to you. James says this, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What he's saying is here, you want to be an adulteress? Do any of you want to be called an adulteress? Probably not. But he says, look, if your friendship is with the world, then you are an adulteress. And it is hostility to God. Basically, pick one. It's mutually exclusive. Pick the world or pick God. Can't have both. You can't have both. Pick one. John said it this way, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, listen to this, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's the world system. When he says don't love the world, he's not talking the Grand Canyon. Right? He's not talking the beauty of his creation. He's talking about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That is the world system. Look around you. Be discerning. When you look around and see the news and see all this activity and you go, what's going on? You know the answer to the question. The world doesn't, but you do. They are listening to their father, the devil, And he has created a system where everything is about lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride. 
and they are all fulfilling those desires. They're satisfying their flesh, they're trying to satisfy their eyes with everything they can get, and they're trying to make themselves proud. I'm the one who sets my destiny. Don't tell me whether I'm a male or female. I'm whatever I say I am. Yeah, okay, fine. Right? That is, that is boastful arrogance, and it's satisfying the lusts of the flesh. And God says, if you're a friend with that, then you're an enemy of me. Choose one. He tells Israel, look, I'm going to call you from all the nations, and you're going to leave all that filth behind. Don't touch anything. And come into my kingdom where your king will lead you. And God will go before you. Isaiah gives us two reasons to remake our lives into a holy pilgrimage, spreading the good news as far as we can. First, our motive is to not panic, but confidence, not loss, but gained. Right? We know that God is with us. Secondly, we have God Himself as an escort along our way. See, in this passage, who is He talking to? Who is He talking to in Isaiah 52? He's talking to Israel. But Jesus says in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always. God will one day go before Israel. Yahweh their king. Jesus their king will go before them. And that same king is now in you and goes before you. Right? You are never alone. You are never alone. You know, there are a lot of people during the whole COVID thing who died alone because people couldn't go visit. They had no family. But if they were a believer, they didn't die alone, right? I don't know how God is going to take me home. I don't know if it'll be in a car crash or I'll die of cancer. Or I don't know. But I know I won't be alone, right? At that last moment, when that last breath comes, I will not be alone. Right, And it doesn't whether, matter whether my wife is with me, my kids are with me. It doesn't matter if I'm alone in a hospital room or in a car. Or where. It doesn't matter. Because Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the same one who is talked about here, will be with you. He will be with Israel. He will be with us. Paul says this in Philippians 3, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid it, hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Right? We understand we're not alone. We understand that we will never be deserted and we are going to strive to walk to the upward call of Jesus and He goes before us. See, when we say this book doesn't matter, it's not relevant to us, I'm hoping you can see how blasphemous a statement like that is, how ridiculous. 
Depart, don't touch anything on the cream, because Yahweh will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. That is true to them, it's true to you. You will never be alone. And I find that incredibly encouraging. Right? No matter where I am or what is happening, you know, I read the story of a guy named Robbie Reisner. Um, where's he at? He knows who Robbie Reisner is. Robbie Reisner was one of the first guys to get shot down over North Vietnam and put in the Hanoi Hilton. He was a neat, godly man. He spent almost two and a half years in a four-by-four-by-four box by himself. No human contact, no direct human contact for years. The intent was to basically destroy him, make him go nuts, make him go crazy. But guess what? Robbie Reisner was not alone. Robbie Reisner was not alone. And he had memorized scripture. And when he was in those cells, he would just remind himself and go over that scripture. And Robbie Reisner knew he was not alone. And when he left, he came to the academy when I was there. And he wrote a really good book about how God himself was with him through all of that and delivered him through all of that. Right? He was never alone. You are never alone. So let's talk about a couple implications before we leave. First of all, I want you to understand we need to be heavenly minded. See, everything he's talked about here, awake, you know, he's talking to Israel. Hey, God is coming. It's not about right now. I am coming. I will go before you. I will be your deliverer. And the same is true of you. So let's not focus on the filth around us. Right? Let's not focus on the garbage can we live in. How many of you are Keith Green fans? He's got a song where he talks about it and he says, you know, I don't know how long, you know, Jesus is going up to prepare a place for me. I don't know when he's coming back, but he goes, I know this. If he's been working on this place 2,000 years, I'm living in a garbage can. Right? So I agree. Peter says this in 1 Peter 9, but you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's you. That's you. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. <coughs> for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that if the thing in which they slander you as an evildoer, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. See, Peter says, look, you need to understand who you are, right? You're not just a person. 
You are part of a chosen family. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are people for God's own possession. That is true of you or if you're a believer in this room. Do you understand when you got saved, it wasn't just like you're joining a club or get to join a church. Before, you were the enemy of God, destined for eternal wrath, but now you are a chosen family, a priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession. A people chosen to receive mercy. But something else changed. You are now a sojourner and an exile in this world. When you got saved, you got taken out of this world. You are in the world, but you're not of it. You understand the difference? You are in the world. You right now physically are in San Antonio, Texas on Lookout Road. That is true. But you are not of this world anymore. And Jesus and John said, Father, just as I am not of the world, right? Jesus was in the world when he prayed that, but he wasn't of it. And he said, they are not of the world because I've called them out of the world. To be, oh, by the way, a chosen family, priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession. Right? Don't forget that. Ephesians 2 and verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ, Jesus, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So you're not of the world. You are now part of a new creation along with the saints, and you are being built into the dwelling place of God. If you are a believer, that is true of you. So, Paul says in Colossians 3, set your minds on the things above, not on that uh, uh, that are on earth. This isn't your hope. This isn't your desire. This isn't the end of your life. This isn't the place we love. You are nothing but a foreigner here. You're an exile. How many of you have lived overseas? Spent not just a week visit, lived over there, right? We lived in Japan, and we tried really hard to do Japanese stuff and, you know, all that. But you know what? We always knew we were foreigners, and the Japanese would always let you know that you're not one of us, Right? We were foreigners and we knew it. And our longing was to come to America, not be in Japan. Went to Germany. My last name is Wachdorf, right? I'll fit right in. My heritage on both sides is German, right? We had a great German neighbor we, we loved, we got with. He would come over and have coffee. But I was a foreigner. And they knew it and I knew it. And even though the Germans were very friendly, Right? You were still a foreigner to them. It wasn't America. It wasn't my home. Well, the same is true here. You are a foreigner. This isn't your home. Don't love it. 
you're just a guy visiting here for a little bit, right? Some of us less time than others. You're just visiting. And we need to remember the exhortation that we saw that we need to be the people who the feet of those who proclaim good news and who announce peace and proclaim good news of good things. Right? Romans 10, verse 17, I've already read it to you. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say they have never heard. On the contrary, they have the voice has gone into the all the earth and the words to the end of the world. Who is the one who does that? Who is the one who proclaims the good news? You. Isn't it interesting? God could have had angels just go around and go, hey, yo, you're elect. Let me tell you the story. Okay, got it? You're saved. God could have done that. Could he not? I mean, he could have done that. Nothing physically stops God from doing anything he wants. But God did not choose angels to be his messengers to proclaim good tidings of good things. Who did he choose? He chose you. Not just the elders, not the deacons. He chose you. He chose you to do that. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God has chosen you to proclaim the good news. Isaiah 52, verse 12. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as those who flee, for Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, God will be with you. He will go before you. He will be your rear guard. Go proclaim the good news. Go proclaim the good news. Many will reject. By the way, how many people did Jesus preach to? How do you think? How many? Thousands. Thousands of thousands heard Messiah speak. They saw him feed 5,000, but that was just 5,000 men, maybe 12,000. I don't know how many. What a miracle. They tried to make him king the next day because they like free food. Right? He did all those miracles. He raised Lazarus from the dead publicly. Right? The news went like wildfire. It was first thing on CNN. Right? Lazarus raised from the dead. By the way, Lazarus is right there. If you don't believe me, go talk to him. There he is. Three days dead. He stunk really bad, but now he smells pretty good. Right? In the upper room, after his crucifixion, how many were in the upper room? 120. 120. You know, they heard Jesus. Here's the bottom line. If you share the gospel, not everybody's going to believe in fast. Many will reject and will hate you for it. They will, they will criticize you. They will ridicule you. But... God has his elect out there, and Jesus says the harvest is white, right? Now, you don't know who the elect are, but he does. 
and they won't get saved until they hear the good news proclaimed to them by those whose feet, what's the exact wording here? Um, those who proclaim good news and announce salvation, who are the feet of him who proclaims good news, right? The precious feet of him, that's you. Let's do that. Let's close. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity, and we thank you that Jesus is always with us. Lord, our life would be impossible without Jesus. We thank you that he will never desert us. Yahweh, you are with us, and you will be with us for eternity. So we bow down before you. We pray you would be with us as we worship you that we would glorify your name above all other things because you are worthy. We pray this in his name. Amen.